0: Hello and welcome to the Jazz Jam Podcast. I'm your host, Dwayne Gunnels, joined by my co-host Max Levy. This week we're going to be getting into a classic album, but something a little bit different. One with a singer, uh, the great Nancy Wilson. This album is Nancy Wilson and Cannonball Adderley, featuring Nancy Wilson and the Cannonball Adderley Quintet. So Max, how are you doing this week?
1: Hey, I'm doing pretty well. I've been very busy and I'm I'm really glad to get into this album with you i've been checking out this record on and off since i was probably 17 or 18 years old Uh, nancy is is one of my favorite vocalists i love her style and there's a lot of things to to really discuss and get into with this record
0: yeah i totally agree it's going to be a a little bit of a change of pace for for our podcast we haven't done one with a singer yet so but before we get into the album, I wanted to hit you with our jazz question of the week, and I figured I'd tailor this one to the theme of the album, which is uh, jazz singers. So here's the question that I have for you, Max. Um, what do you expect when you're on a gig with a singer, and what are some of the differences between playing with a singer versus playing in a group with just instrumentalists?
1: It's a great question. Um There's a lot of different things that come to my mind. Number one being the focus of how you're perceived by the audience or in the setting that you're playing. So number one, if you're a horn player or piano player and you're on the gig with other musicians, usually you are the band leader. You are the main focus. You are calling the tunes. You know, you, you have the, um, ability and the expectation. To come up with a majority of the set list and the keys that the songs are in that you're calling also you can arrange you know whatever you're feeling in the moment you can trade fours there's a a, a little more liberty in that setting now if there's a vocalist on the gig then they whether or not they book the book the gig or if they book the musicians on the gig or even if they don't have anything to do with the the process, you know, the payment, setting up invoices and and yada yada, then it doesn't matter. They become the main focus of how the music is being perceived by the audience or in whatever setting you're playing. So a lot of times the singer will determine the keys that the songs are in. And also the set list may look quite a bit different. So if you're a horn player, you might call some Charlie Barker. Charlie Parker tunes or maybe some Wayne Shorter or, you know, just a vast array of of standards that you could pull from that, you know, where historically the saxophone or the trumpet or maybe the piano have shined. So if the singer's on the gig, the set list will probably have more of the great American songbook and the songs that they call will likely be in different keys and you're used to playing the song in because they want to call a song in a key that's comfortable in their natural voice. So the range ability between a singer and an instrumentalist may be quite different. Some vocalists have a wide range and some have a shorter range. So they're going to call whatever key is most comfortable or they feel like they most can perform um, in with a particular standard.
0: Yeah, I think those are great points. I think um, one of the biggest things to playing with a singer is definitely flexibility. And like you're saying, just being able to play things in different keys and being prepared to play something in a key you've never played before. Having an app like iReal Pro that'll transpose um, songs for you is great. So if they call a standard and they want to do it, you play it in C and they want to play it in E-flat, you're just able to go on there and do that and look up the the changes that way. So I think, yeah, those are great points. And yeah, just know that when you're on a gig with a singer, they're the main focus and you're going to have to kind of cater to their needs when, when you're on that gig.
1: Yeah, especially as a horn player, you have to think about how you complement the vocalist and, and the main melody instead of, you know the usual practice of, you know, you can make the melody your own, you can embellish it, but if the singer's there, they're going to sing the melody, and how do you fill in the space in between the melodic phrasing that the melody calls for? Um, There's some great players that come to mind that do that really well, one being saxophonist Houston Person, who's still alive today, and he's on a lot of different vocalist records. He's well known for backing up Etta Jones, the great singer, Um, and I got the pleasure to see him, oh, probably five years ago in Kansas city. He was on the bandstand with the great Karen Allison, who's a, a great singer originally from Kansas city. And so I was six or seven feet from him and it was just so cool. The way he plays behind a vocalist, every, every moment was kind of a lesson and so there's some great moments on this album we're going to talk about today as well where nat Adderley and cannibal both compliment nancy very well and and how they treat their playing on a standard or a tune where a vocalist is on it um is a lesson in and of itself too
0: yeah i definitely think that's that's a great point yeah this album has it. displays that really well and Cannonball and Nat do a great job with that so without further ado let's get into the album a little bit and the the history of of the album so Max why don't you tell us a little bit about the the background of of Nancy and Cannonball and how they met
1: yeah this this album kind of comes just a couple years after Nancy Wilson kind of started her her real jazz career she was a singer um born and raised in Ohio And along the way, she met Cannonball Adderley on a gig in Columbus, Ohio. So Cannonball was playing there and somehow he heard about Nancy Wilson or Nancy was was there in the audience. And so she got to sit in and and play some or, or rather sing some songs with the band. And they were just kind of head charts, you know, just calling tunes and keys. And Cannonball was so impressed with. The way Nancy Wilson sang, she, she had control, she had dynamics, she had range, great vibrato. And so he encouraged her to make a move to New York City and really chase this music passion and, and start her career. And so she did that um, just a few years later after that first initial meeting. And so along the way, she wanted to have a collaborative piece of work. With Cannonball, they had more or less become become friends and kind of close. And so this is what came of that relationship. They wanted to kind of have, have an album where she was kind of the third horn on a recording with her, him, and his brother, Nat Adderley, the great cornetist. <clears throat> and they kind of wanted a spontaneous, relaxed set and a lot of happy kind of... <clears throat> happy songs that featured um, not only what she could do, but what he could do. And they wanted to do songs that were not overplayed or played to death. So that's how this recording came to be.
0: Yeah, and I think that's awesome to to learn that history that Nancy was encouraged by Cannonball to move to New York and really pursue a career in singing. And it's interesting because everyone knows who Nancy Wilson is and knows who Cannonball is, but to, to realize that he played such a big part in her singing career, so that's interesting. I think this album is awesome because it kind of is is that collaboration between them, you know, after she moved to to New York. So cool. Let's get into the the personnel on the album. Um, so it's it's Nancy and it's the Cannonball Adderley Quintet. But let's get into who those players actually are.
1: So first, there's Nancy Wilson, the the main star of this album. This record is interesting because it combines. Songs that have a vocal feature and songs that do not have vocals and only are instrumental. So that's a that's a neat aspect of this album um, because you really get a flavor for for what both Nancy Wilson and Cannonball Adderley do, and you see them come together. So all in all, it, it it's just a very succinct, really cool album. If you don't know, we're talking about the jazz vocalist Nancy Wilson, not the rock star from the band Heart. (laughs) There's kind of two famous musicians named Nancy Wilson. And so we're talking about the the beautiful, the soulful um, jazz vocalist Nancy, who originally was from Ohio. Like I said earlier, she sang in a lot of church choirs growing up. She eventually grew up studying education at Ohio Central State University met Cannonball along the way, made the move, made the move to New York and eventually recorded more than 70 albums. And she's best known for, for two hits, hit songs. Guess who I saw today and how glad I am, how glad I am is kind of an R and B and pop hit. And the song guess who I saw today is kind of her staple. And she's performed that song all over the world. It's a great, great tune about (laughs) confronting your lover that you saw earlier that day at a cafe hanging out with a different person who, you know, they were locking eyes and they were obviously in love. So it's all about you confronting your lover that you found out was cheating on you earlier that day. So it's that I love that song. Guess who I saw today. Doesn't that sound like a cool tune?
0: <laughs> That's a great title for like a I gotcha tune like Guess who I saw today. That's you. exact.
1: Yeah. <laughs> That's how it ends. It's Yeah, with that lyric, guess who I saw today? I saw you. Yeah. And it's just phenomenal. You got to check that out. Um, along the way, she won three Grammys, and she was also a TV and movie actress. Um, so very well established, very well known. She had her paws in a lot of different things, and, and she was kind of known as an ultimate entertainer, and she preferred the term song stylist. So that's how she thought of herself she was you know not a musician or a singer or you know a diva as a lot of the old um or classic jazz singers were thought of you know the jazz divas we had we also had the blues mamas earlier on she saw herself as a song stylist so that's really um a, a cool way you know to, to see yourself as a performer
0: yeah for sure and so up next we have uh the Great Cannonball Adderley on the alto saxophone. Max, I'll let you talk about Cannonball since you're a saxophone player.
1: Yeah, Cannonball is known as kind of taking up the torch in the history of jazz music from Charlie Parker, mm-hmm. the great alto saxophonist, Kansas City, Kansas native, who really pioneered um, the bebop movement. Although, you know, he was influenced by a lot of musicians who were kind of around the late 30s, early 40s who were transitioning the music with what they were playing from the swing era to the bebop era. But the two players that really culminated that that transition were Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker. And so along the way, you know, they, they really solidified bebop. And then we talk about post-bebop and the alto sax player that kind of comes next in a lot of people's minds is this player, Cannonball Adderley. And so both he and Nat Adderley, the cornetist and trumpet player, uh, were born in Florida. Uh, and Cannonball was nicknamed that because of his ferocious appetite in school. You know, he, um, I've heard a story where a lot of times after a gig, when he would go out to eat with the rest of the band members, that he would actually order two dinners. So he would order a dinner with everyone else. And then as Everyone else was eating, and he finished. He ordered a second dinner. <laughs> so That's, you know, that's a really neat story about Cannonball.
0: Yeah, that's a, that is a, a cool story about about Cannonball, and I yeah, it's kind of how he got his name. I'm I'm pretty sure. So, yeah, that's let's, right. Let's get into uh to his brother Nat Adderley. So Nat Adderley is a the fantastic trumpet player. Um, he played in military bands, and then he was uh, picked up by. Lionel Hampton in 1954. And I think the most important thing to note about Nat, he was a great player, but he was also very well known for his compositions. He composed songs such as Work Song and Jive Samba. And so there are just some really great soul jazz and like post-bop compositions that he composed. And so for the quintet um, specifically. So I think that's the, the biggest thing to know about Nat Adderley, as well as being a, a fantastic player.
1: Yeah, he really helped manage the Cannonball Adderley Quintet, um, which he formed with his brother. Um, kind of, you know, around the time of the, of of this album, and um, Nat did a lot behind the scenes, in addition to to playing on stage. And those two kept a very close relationship, both personal and musical. Um, unfortunately, Cannonball passed away by around 1975 and after that nat, nat was still playing and touring europe japan and he later taught a lot of times um we think of these guys as as solely players but a number of them were were well known as teachers and that was one of those cats he taught at harvard and later at florida southern college and he lived quite a bit longer than his brother dying in in 2000 um, due to some diabetes complications so they they kind of they led a little bit of different lives, but they were very close throughout all of that.
0: Yeah. I so de- it's yeah. definitely important to note that cannonball died when he was 46 years old. So that's right. His discography is cut short by his shorter, shorter life. And there's definitely more that, that he could have had to offer, but cool. Let's get into the, the rhythm section on the album on drums. We have the great Louis Hayes and Louis Hayes played with so many different groups. Um, he played with Horace Silver's quintet and then and then the Cannonball Adderley quintet for a long time. And he also played with the Oscar Peterson trio um, for a few years, as well as working alongside Freddie Hubbard, Joe Henderson, Junior Cook, and Woody Shaw. And he also played with uh, McCoy Tyner as well.
1: That's right. And there's a lot of albums with the rhythm section being both Lewis Hayes, the drummer, and... And Sam Jones, the bass player, who's on this record. There's quite a few different albums where it's those two playing together, and you can tell from this album how well they they play, not only by themselves, but together, and how well they lock in. Um, so that's that's a that's a cool thing too. And Lewis Hayes also later formed the Cannonball Legacy Band, and Lewis Hayes is still alive today. He's still with us. I'm still kicking.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. He's got to be up in his his 90s, I'm assuming, or maybe 80s.
1: He is. He is. I don't know his exact age, but yeah, he's one of the legends still with us today. Um, And then, as I mentioned, the other really key center player of the rhythm section is Sam Jones, the bassist. He's also from Florida, born in Jacksonville, Um, moved to New York uh, in 1955, which is roughly around the same time Cannonball did. And Sam Jones would later record with Bobby Timmons, Dizzy, Monk, and with Cannonball. Um, And he was also uh, a recording artist for Riverside Records. And he's both well-known for playing with Oscar Peterson. But he also had a a lot of albums as a leader. And it's kind of rare to see a bass player as a band leader. But Sam Jones was one of those guys. He has a huge discography. He's played with everybody, and he was also a pretty um, pretty well-trained composer. He's known for two hit songs, Unit 7 and Del Sasser, which are are two tunes that Cats will call on a gig. So Sam Jones has had just a, a big place in this music, um, and he unfortunately passed away in 1981 due to lung cancer, and there's <laughs> actually quite a few people involved with this album who died from that cause from lung cancer, you know, either the composers we're going to talk about or the players. So that's unfortunate.
0: Yeah. I think that probably comes from, of smoking, you know, was very common back in the days, especially amongst, you know, jazz musicians and people who frequented bars and, you know, establishments like that, that people were smoking inside of bars. So yeah, unfortunately that was just much more of a, a hip thing to do back then. Um, I think it's interesting, uh, or good to note that Unit 7, which you mentioned, is actually featured on this album, so we'll get into that track um, later on. And so finally on the album, we have the great pianist Joe Zawinol, and I think Joe is might be overlooked at times as one of the great jazz pianists in jazz history, and he's done so much and influenced so many people in so many different ways when it comes to jazz, he had such a long stint with the Cannonball Adderley Quintet. Basically, from the beginning, he's from Vienna, Austria, and then he moved to the United States to attend Berkeley, but then left Berkeley to tour with Maynard Ferg- Ferguson. Um, so after that, he started playing with Cannonball, and that kind of kicked off his his career, you know. And so he he wrote the tune entitled "Mercy, Mercy, Mercy," which is probably the most known. Cannonball Adderley tune, um, quintet tune. So, and he wrote many other tunes and another big impact he had on, on the jazz culture and jazz music is his work in jazz fusion, especially with, um, he founded the weather report with, um, Wayne Shorter. So I think, um, that's just, they're probably the most famous jazz fusion band there is. And he just had a big impact on the music in that way, both with Cannonball Adderley in that soul jazz post bop way, and then into jazz fusion into the seventies and the eighties.
1: Yes, he's a real key player. You know, if we're talking um, post bop or really post West Coast jazz, and we get into soul jazz and and the movement of the music, he is so important to the history of that. His songs are are played all over the place all the time his recordings with weather report are iconic um and and he's just a a really cool player to listen to
0: yeah yeah he's fantastic and he he does so many different things so well and we'll get into those um when we break down the album which we're gonna do now let's get into the first track on the album which is the vocal tune entitled save your love for me
1: Yes, this is a, a ballad. It's a tune written by pianist Buddy Johnson, who is originally from South Carolina, and he always thought of his music as having a southern tinge to it. He also loved classical move, music. Um, he was uh, you know eventually moving from South Carolina to New York in 1938, began recording in 1939, and he had a number of pop hits as well as early R&B hits. He's known for the the ballad or the R and song since I fell for you. And there's a lot of different great versions of that tune in the history of this music, um, Houston person did it really well. And then there's a cool, uh, collaborative recording of Al Jarreau and David Sanborn doing that song too. Um, so, so buddy Johnson's compositional influence is all throughout the music and his playing. He's kind of known for the jump blues piano style. And then um, later he, he passed away in, in 1977.
0: Yeah, and I think, yeah, this composition has a very unique um, sound to it. The chord structure is unique, especially to other jazz standards or jazz tunes. Um, so, yeah, it starts out with a, a short two-bar intro that I think sets up the melody really well. And then uh, Nancy Wilson comes in with the, the melody, and her voice is just incredible, just right from the get-go. Um, one thing that she does really well is she she holds out notes for much longer than you might expect at the end of her phrases. She definitely has um, a lot of use of legato um, and tenuto-like um, techniques to really extend the end of her phrases, which is really nice. And She moves her phrases so much dynamically that she's She'll move them a lot, and then she'll hold out the end and kind of use that to taper off and kind of really use dynamics super, super well. Um, So her singing is just on point, and it just starts out in a super soulful and, and dynamic way.
1: You know exactly what you're getting with Nancy Wilson from the very first line she sings. There's no question her ability. There's no question her musicality. I love her vibrato and it, you know, hers is a little more distinct. Um, she kind of does a lesser young thing where you kind of delay the vibrato towards the end of the phrase or towards the end of a note or something. And then, um, and then you, and she's, she does really well tapering off her vibrato and, and it's so dynamic. And that's featured a lot in this album is her approach, her ability, her dynamics, her melodic movement. It's just incredible. And you know that right from the get-go and, you know, at the 15 second mark, you get a sense of her vibrato right away. And I love the intro too. It's, it's a cool line. It's simple, yet it's also moving with in, you know, with the song into the melody and Nancy moves the, the melody in such a way that it's, you know, it's always, Um, it's always dynamic, it's always musical, and she follows the line. You know, when we talk about following the line, what I mean is the melodic movement or the movement of notes you're playing or singing going up and down, and how you treat that on your instrument or in your voice. And so she follows the line of the music so well right from the get-go.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, She's just so musical with her approach to, to singing and kind of uses her voice as an instrument with the different techniques, the vibratos and everything that she does so well. So yeah.
1: And then the other thing, you know, I mentioned earlier how to deal with a vocalist on the gig as a horn player. This is a great example of what to do. Um, if you listen to the trumpet playing of Nat Adderley behind Nancy, you know, using longer notes, using less notes and really filling in that space as well as Nat does is something that, just amplifies everything else that's going on.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree. I think Nat stands out in the way that he accompanies Nancy, but I think it's interesting to listen to all of them because they all take turns accompanying Nancy. On the first A, we get Nat. The second A, it's Cannonball, and then Joe Zawinol over the bridge, and then they go back to Nat um, when they on the last A. So I think it's cool. Each one of them does a great job of accompanying her, and you know maybe in slightly different ways and different um, you know personal touches to it. But yeah, Nat definitely stands out um, with the way that he does it. But I think this is just a great track to listen to, so many different um, players accompanying um, a singer.
1: Yeah, and they do treat that role differently. I think for me, Nat does the best job. Cannonball does well. He plays a little bit too much on that second A, um, and I love what the piano is doing on the bridge. So that's a good point. They each get a get a turn and a chance to cat behind her, and it also makes the music move and be more interesting. If you just have if you just stick to one player, catting behind the vocalist all the time can be a little monotonous.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, um. Yeah.
1: A couple things about her voice on this track. She's very emotive. I love what she does during the bridge. It's, it's soulful. And sometimes she's kind of not even singing. She's kind of talking. Uh, but in her inflections right around 118 to 119, you can hear the flexibility of Nancy's voice, her use of, of bending notes, and just the dynamic dynamics of, of backing off immediately when the next A section comes in after the bridge. It's just incredible and again the vo- the vocal dynamics at 142 to 145 are uh, i can't describe it other than insanely good
0: yeah yeah i definitely agreed her yeah that's just something that's going to stand out throughout the album is her use of dynamics and her way her control really um so yeah yeah i definitely agree with that um do you have anything else on that track max i don't think i i have much else to say about about that one it-
1: yeah, it's just cool to note that the outro is very similar to the intro. You know, a lot of times, sometimes we think we should do something different. But if you just do on the outro what you did on the intro, that's a cool bookend of the song you're playing. And I like how the last sound you hear is Nat's trumpet or cornet and the keys. And the whole song is less than three minutes. And it's just one time through the form with an added added outro. So that's really cool. You don't have to play a super long song and especially if you have a vocalist you just let her shine
0: yeah yeah definitely so let's get into the second track on the album which is uh the first instrumental track entitled t-neck
1: yeah i just wanted to say if depends how you're listening to this record because on the lp album version of the actual record it flip-flops between a vocal feature song and an instrumental song and it goes back and forth if you're listening digitally on Spotify, Apple Music, it's going to put all the vocal tracks together and then do all the instrumental tracks together. So be careful if you're trying to um, listen to us at the same time or going back and forth between us and the album that you're following the songs that we're talking about. This one is T-neck, the, um, the first instrumental on the track.
0: Yeah, and not, I think it's interesting yeah, not the next vocal. That, that it's done that way because it seems like they wanted they obviously on the on the record they wanted it to be vocal instrumental vocal instrumental but then on cd releases and now on like digitally it groups all of them separately so i wonder why they've chosen to do that the record label has chosen to do that to release it in a different fashion now than was originally done it's interesting to me i like i like listening to it um in the way that it was originally meant to be listened to
1: yeah, and it's more cohesive. It's more musical. I think um, you get a better sense of the the range of styles and the players by doing it flip flopping, where you have one vocal than than instrumental. It makes it more interesting to listen to. And so this uh, this um, first instrumental song, "T Neck," is written by Nat Adderley. We talked about his compositional um, just uh, ability, and and this is one where that is displayed so well the melody is is kind of bouncy it's a driving tempo it's a 16 bar form you get a and and kind of an a prime so two 16 bars um two 16 bar sections repeat you know one after another where the second one's a little different than the first but it's essentially the same thing um and i want to say i think cannibal is a really killer solo on this his Uh, improvisational ability is featured so well, his range, his style. And sometimes on this album, he gets a little gritty later on. He has a cool rhythmic lick at 44 seconds on this track. And he kind of uses that quite a bit and, and pulls from what he's doing. He's always continually developing his solo. It's not like lick, 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 lick. He's kind of big picture, even though he has all the licks in there and more. But he connects them so well, and his phrasing and his um, melodicism is key to note and cool to follow when he's soloing.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, I think there's like there's definitely a more straight-ahead feel on this track. The first track on the album with Nancy definitely feels more, it, like I said, it's a little bit different of a jazz composition. And this one gets way more into the straight-ahead kind of a, a bop feel to it. I think it was an interesting choice not to include a bridge. Um, I don't mind it, but I think it is an interesting thing to note that there is no bridge on the song. Um, but yeah, definitely a heavy bebop influence with the tempo. This one's a little bit higher tempo or faster tempo, and then the solos from all of the players have more of that bop influence. And like Max said, with Cannonball and his lines, Um Yeah, and the way that Nat starts his solo out, he starts with some some you know of those moving bop lines, but then he gets into some more soulful and bluesy ideas and lines as Nat tends to do.
1: Yeah, Nat Adderley makes great use of space, and if I were to compare him and his brother, I would say Nat uses a lot, uh, quite a bit more space, and is more organic. In his playing, you know, a lot of cannonball can be traced directly to um, a player from the past. You know, a little Charlie Parker, maybe a little Benny Carter, yada, yada. But with Nat, it's a little more um, individual and organic is the sense I get from his playing.
0: Yeah, yeah, I definitely can agree with that. Um, I think Nat has a very unique sound um, on the trumpet. And so, um, I wanted to get into Joe Zawinul's uh, playing a little bit on his his solo. Um, it's very line oriented and very very bop heavy. It kind of reminds me of Sonny Clark, which we've talked about in previous albums with the the linear movement and the right hand. Um, and so, yeah, he sticks to more so the the bop lines on this one. Um, and one thing I wanted to note is his left hand playing is something that's really interesting he's doing a lot with his left hand which not not a whole lot of other pianists will do um especially when they're really linear with their le- right hand he gets pretty busy and pretty rhythmic with his uh with his left hand but it ties into what he's doing with those lines super well so i definitely i really like that his style kind of reminds me of the great barry harris who was a great uh bop piano player so kind of some sonny clark and in, and in, Barry, Barry Harris that I'm getting from this, but yeah, just a great, great uh, piano solo from Joe.
1: Yes, it's as if if you combine those two players, you get the foundation of, of Zawanul. You're right, his left hand is, is pretty involved and rhythmic, but it's not in the way of what his right hand is doing, and it's not in the way of what the rhythm section is doing. Um, also, Sam Jones, uh, I love his bass playing. It's very driving, and it's keeping the pocket together not only is he right in, in line with what the drummer is playing, um, those, the, the bass and the drums have to have a, a cohesive, collected um, pulse and movement. And a lot of times we want the bass you know, to be driving and then the drums accentuate the beat or the swing feel. So Sam Jones, he's just always driving. And this particular track, he, he, you can hear that really well. Um, also if we're talking about the form, I love the added eight bar tag at four minutes and 20 seconds of this song.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, I think that's, you make a really good point there with, uh, Sam Jones. And I think it's important for us to, to talk about the rhythm sections sometimes, because it could be easy to overlook the rhythm sections when they're doing a great job. It could be easy just not to say anything. We notice it more when it's not together it's not in the pocket so i appreciate you giving sam jones um his due there because yeah these guys the rhythm section on this album is fantastic and these guys are just so locked in the the whole time
1: absolutely he's one of the cats to listen to if you're a bass player
0: yeah he's he he is really really incredible so let's get into the the third track on the album we're back to a vocal tune um this one's entitled never will i marry
1: yes this one is a well-known track from the album "Never Will I Marry" was written by Frank Lesser. Um He's known for for writing the music to "Guys and Dolls." You know he's very active on Broadway. He's one of the um, you know Jewish American songwriters that helped contribute to the song list of the Great American Songbook. He learned piano at an early age. Started playing by ear at four years old. His father also taught piano, but his father never taught him his son a piano lesson. And I always thought that was an interesting um, fact about about Frank Lester that you know his dad kind of refused to teach his own son lessons when obviously his own son was skilled and already already could hear the music at 4 years old and was already tinkering at the piano. It's a I think there's a history of a strange relationship there.
0: Yeah, that's kind of a wild fact. I did not know that. That's that seems kind of strange for him not to want to, yeah, like share that with his son.
1: Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, uh Lester uh, kind of had his first song credit in 1931. Wrote a lot for Broadway, Tim Pan Alley, known for his song Baby It's Cold Outside. He sold it in 1948 and became pretty wealthy from that one. <laughs> yeah. Um uh, in 1950, he wrote music for Guys and Dolls, and the great movie version is with Frank Sinatra from 55. Frank is also known for working long hours. I think he only slept around four hours a night, and he was also a heavy smoker, and he's one of these guys that I mentioned earlier, passed away from lung cancer in uh, 1969.
0: Yeah, so let's get into the tune itself. Um, this vocal tune, I feel like, is a much more swing-oriented um, tune versus the the soulful rendition of Save Your Love For Me that we got first on the album. And one thing that I really like is how the bass plays a melodic line on the intro. I think that's a really cool idea, um, and I really like when you get some more m- melodic stuff coming from the bass, so I think that's a really cool part of this intro.
1: Yeah. Sam Jones shines again, um, right from the start on this one, the form of this song is also kind of interesting. It's more or less kind of a 24 bar form repeated. Uh, this song is kind of hard to do on the bandstand. I, I don't think the chart in the, the real book is right on, on some of this, but, um, this is a very well-known version of the song. Never will I marry. And there's also a record of cannibal Adderley doing an instrumental version of the tune. On a different record so uh, it's kind of associated with these two these two cannonball and nancy wilson um and once we get into the song the second repeated time through on the head um through the form at a uh, minute marker 39 seconds i love the horn hits that occur there and there's a rise in dynamics led by nancy's you know big vocal prowess and the movement just on that section is really killer um, I also love the lingering vibrato we've been mentioning. Nancy uses that to transition into the alto solo, and it's cool how the the vocal vibrato just kind of tapers into Cannonball solo. Um, it's just so so perfect the way that occurs.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think one thing that stands out to me is Nancy Wilson's control is just so incredible, and she's always in control of what she's doing and. The techniques that she's using um one thing that stands out to me is her vowel placement is really incredible and the way that she helps she uses her vowel placement to help shape the phrases that she's singing and um so you know she'll place her vowels in different places to get different dynamics and to move through the lines in a succinct and a dynamic fashion um She starts like more back and closed in her vowel placement, but then she opens up more and moves forward as she needs to draw more from the melody. So that's kind of what I was talking about is her vowel placement can be back and kind of closed off. And then when she needs to get more dynamically, she opens it up and moves it more forward in her in her mouth. So I think that's just shows her technique and her control, which is just really incredible and how she's able to use her voice as as an instrument, you know, and get different uh, sounds and dynamics out of out of her voice.
1: Yeah. It displays her flexibility really well. Um, you know, she's always doing something with her voice and you just have to kind of tune in and really listen to what she's doing because there's so much there. Um, and later on in this track, when Cannonball starts his solo, I, you know, I think it's a little more melodic here. There's better use of space from him and I get the, the sense that this particular alto solo, kind of breathes really well and just has a little more musicality to it um, than maybe the, the, you know, the first couple of times we hear Cannonball.
0: Yeah, for sure. I, I really like how Cannonball takes a solo on this album, although it's short. I think it's, it's really great and it's well developed, even though it's a short solo. I like how he does use some space on this one. And I really like the lines and ideas that he's playing And it feels like it's a well-played response to Nancy's singing of the melody. So it feels like it just complements the melody that's sung by Nancy really, really well.
1: That's right. And when we talk about Nancy and her style, I think it's well showcased at minute marker 148 through 160. Her bending, her melismatic movement, her dynamics are displayed really well. At 205, you can clearly hear Nancy's vocal flexibility on the line till I'm dead. She bends each of those syllables on those words so well and tremendously. Um, every time I listen to that particular lyric from her, I get kind of chills. <laughs> it's yeah. so great.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, she has that that ability to kind of like all those wow moments with her singing and just the things that she does so well. Um, one thing about this track is it's very short. Like the first vocal track, um, this one's only... I think less than two and a half minutes, like two minutes and 19 seconds. And I was down for like another two and a half minutes on this one. I could have gone for a longer solo. some I was just, this song was really awesome. And although it was short, I like that they keep it short, but I could have, I could have gone for more on the, on this one.
1: Yeah. We could always use a little more, but for, you know, for talking specifically me and Dwayne.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> true.
1: We're known for stretching or enjoying the stretch or writing out at the end of a song or something. So, yeah, we could always use a little more. But when something's uh, killing, it, we're
0: going to want some more of it. That's for sure.
1: That's right. And, but this is the beauty of it. You know, it's the track is so short, but there's also still so much in there in that two minutes. And that's the great thing about Nancy. She puts so much in everything she's doing. Cannonball, you know, is always, you know, almost 100%. A lot of the time and so you can with these players these musicians you can do two minutes and still have a lot to to listen to
0: that is a great point yeah they can do two and a half minutes and they get all the ideas and the you know what the song needs to say across in those two and a half minutes because they're so talented yeah it's a great point max let's get into the the fourth track on the album which we're going back to the instrumentals this is the song entitled i can't get started
1: this is a ballad i Call this one quite a bit on the bandstand. It you know, it's not one of the top ballads, but it's almost one of the top called ballads or or top listened to or covered songs. Um, that's usually played as a ballad. This was originally a pop song written in 1936 from Vernon Duke, and the lyrics are by Ira Gershwin. Vernon Duke also wrote Autumn in New York and April in Paris, and he kind of split his time between New York and Paris. He also wrote for Broadway, and he also wrote a lot of classical music. He also later died from lung cancer. Again, we get <laughs> a similar story with, with composers here. Um, and he passed away in 1969, and it's a lesson that you should really just not smoke cigarettes.
0: Yeah, I think, yeah, we're not trying to be like an ad for not smoking cigarettes, but, geez, there have been so many jazz musicians who have passed away from the use of cigarettes and even, you know, some heavy drinkers that were jazz musicians, Bobby Timmons comes to mind. Um, so yeah, just like, I think it's less common now, but yeah, just, I don't know. We've lost way too many jazz, great jazz musicians to, to lung cancer. So if you're a jazz musician, please, please don't do that. We want, we want your music. (laughs) I mean, and even with Joey D who just passed away, had a drinking problem and, you know, not super healthy. So yeah, just, uh, take care of yourselves you know we want we want your your music your legacy to be fulfilled you know so
1: yeah we're doing the best we can always and we all have issues and we all try and deal with it in a lot of different ways but we see a pattern um in both players and composers and just people involved in in this industry and it's unfortunate um but anyway back to the music you know i i love this ballad it again i mentioned it's it's not really too overplayed but it's well covered on this track. I love the intro. The eighth note symbol hits from the drums are a little too much for me. Every time uh, Zawanol is moving on the piano, the drums are following rhythmically and there's a, a bar or a bar and a half where it's, or half a bar where it's kind of just uh, consistent eighth notes and the drums are doing that as well. And I just, uh, that kind of took it away from me. Yeah. I was it was like a I,
0: little busy there
1: yeah it's a little busy um but anyway when we get into the melody cannibal really shines on this and here we get kind of some swing era influenced styles um from cannonball his vibrato really kind of makes that come out to me in my mind he has a really cool line at the 47 second mark and i love his treatment of the bridge um during the melody and there's a lot of different ways to play around with that melody on the bridge, and and he does it really well. The original movement of the lines and the, the melodic movement of the tune are kind of just um, not basic, but it's, it's kind of just outlined simply, and then a lot of players will add on top of that, and what Cannonball does on that bridge um, is golden. So I really like that.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm going to get into Joe Zawinol's solo. Do you have anything else about Cannonball or is that?
1: Uh, just during solos, there's a nice uh, half-step 2-5 motion in bars 3 and 4 where we kind of do two fives falling in half-steps. So sometimes when you play this song, you know musicians will want to do that, and sometimes when you play it, musicians will not want to do that. But uh, fortunately on this version, we get that kind of 2-5 half-step motion in that part of the form. Um and then on the piano solo, you know, Zawinu is killing. I think he's very kind of floating and everything he's playing seems more flowy and continuously moving.
0: Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. I really love Zawinu's solo on this one. It's um kind of the first time he's really shined. The the solo on uh the first instrumental is really good. But I really, really love this one. He's, he's not overplaying, um, but it's still super tasteful. This one really reminds me of some of the playing of, of Oscar Peterson. Um, the nice runs up and down the piano, the use of the left hand. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's easy listening. I think it fits the feel of this ballad really well on this one. So I think Joe does a, a great job um, with his style on this one. It kind of reminds me of, of the way that Oscar would approach a ballad.
1: Yes. This one is, is very, you know, this one proves that Joe Zawinow is a piano player Mm -hmm. and we've, you know, we've talked about the kind of perception of difference from Oscar Peterson um, that, you know, he indicated, you know, you should really use the whole piano, use your left hand. Don't, don't rely solely on linear movement. Don't try and copy, just simply copy a horn player, do that and more. And so I think Joe does that really well on the piano on this one. Um, and then later on at 3.31, Cannonball comes back in. He uses kind of a cliche lick we all use. There's also a good use of range on this solo um, during the bridge. And to end it, Cannonball plays just on the last A, the head out.
0: And, you know,
1: they, they treat the the solos within the within the form really well on this. Also, we get a little solo alto cadenza, and then the rhythm section comes back in with kind of um, five or six hits, and then we get a final chord. So here we kind of get the classic saxophone cadenza that I love so much, (laughs) and we get a a little taste of it here on this one.
0: Yeah, I really like uh, the cadenza at the end and the hits and how it resolves it. I thought that was a really cool way to end this tune, for sure. I agree with you there, Max.
1: Yep. What's the next one?
0: Uh, the next one is uh, a tune entitled "The Old Country." We're back to another vocal tune on on this one. That's
1: right. We're again we're swapping vocal instrumental vocal instrumental. This one is written by Nat Adderley and Curtis Lewis. Um, fe- It's featured as an instrumental also on the Sam Jones album "The Soul Society," but here it's recorded with vocals, and I really think. You know, this is kind of the version to listen to of the Nat Adderley tune. Um, and then his, his cohort on this one from compositional perspective, Curtis Lewis. He also wrote a lot of pop tunes, and he was one of the first black composers and lyricists to own a publishing company on Broadway in the 1950s. So there's a lot of great history with this song.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I love... um getting into this song a little bit I love the minor bluesy feel of this track and I love the way that Nancy gets a little bit more soulful on this track than the the previous few tracks uh, vocal tracks on the album
1: yes it's very soulful Um, the form of it it's kind of a 16 bar form and like you said it's in a minor key sometimes you know as players we kind of feel like we can do more in a minor key i don't know exactly why that is but we can kind of open up and and there's more of a blues tinge to what we're doing Mm -hmm. and that's featured really well on this track i also love the piano intro it flows really well into the song you know it kind of uh, towards the end of it it goes into the song effortlessly we're also getting a two feel from the bass and that's Uh, muted cornet fits so well behind nancy wilson again it's a lesson in how to accompany a vocalist as a horn player or as a rhythm section player and how well can you complement the vocal that's going on in front of you it seems like the arrangement is always on this album kind of whichever horn plays behind nancy on the last section of the form then the other horn player solos Mm -hmm. so on this one we get nap behind nancy but then cannibal takes the solo Um, and they do kind of the intro or they go, sorry, into a four, four feel on Cannonball's 16 bar solo instead of keeping the two feel, it starts out a bit melodic and then it gets kind of more busy as he continues on. There's definitely some nice lines and some really quick bop oriented ideas from Cannonball. And again, there's a really good use of range.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um, and Cannonball comes in swinging with this one. And I honestly, Joe Zawinol takes a solo next. And I feel like Joe's solo is a little bit more reserved and doesn't move a lot. Um, and in my opinion, I could have gone for another chorus of Cannonball on this one. I think I like what Cannonball was doing. And Joe just didn't, didn't give me much. And it just felt like it didn't, it didn't speak to me a lot and didn't say a lot. So I, I could have gone for more Cannonball on this track.
1: I completely agree, a hundred percent. The piano does not really shine. It's a little light. It's, I mean, it's good use of lines and, and some melodic movement, but I really could have used more from Joe on it, or just not need. You know, I just didn't need the piano solo. Um, like you said, just have Cannonball blow a little more.
0: Yeah, yeah. But as far as as Nancy goes on this one, Nancy seems to give us a little more of her vocal range and the chops on this one. Um, I feel like this song, the bluesy feel of this kind of allows her to kind of let loose a little bit. Um, So, yeah, she gives us a little bit more. She has great tone, great control, the vowel placement, the dynamics, everything that we've talked about already. She's doing it all on this track. And I think it's just I could listen to her sing all day. It's so easy to listen to her sing. And she's so good. And she's doing so many different things so well that it's just incredible. I could I could literally listen to her sing all day.
1: Absolutely. Her vocal bends are really featured really well on this one at 227 on the lyric, even the way she bends that, that word. And that that kind of note is so effortless. I love the treatment of the word what that she does at 230. It's kind of, um, she has some nice staccato and it's such a nice variety of vocal phrasing that she pulls from. And again, on the word cold at 235, she kind of bends down and it's so seamless and perfect. Um, Also, towards the end of the track, when Nancy sings the word me and holds it out with that kind of fleeting vibrato, she tapers it off so well and it's so dynamic, you can really hear Nancy Wilson at the very end of this particular track
0: yeah yeah for sure yeah those just go to yeah to speak to the control and the dynamics yeah definitely those vocal bends and her ability to control her voice as if it were an instrument as if she were manipulating an, an instrument so those are great points Max
1: I also think this song the old country is a really cool composition in general I think Nat Adderley as a composer is kind of pulling from a lot of different things I mean he loves the 16 bars. forms (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know it kind of sticks to that as the go-to but this melody and 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 the the fact that we have the vocal doing the lyrics on this track um i just think it it displays everybody really well
0: yeah and i think that one thing to note is that the compositions the vocal songs are all they feel different. Like they all have different like kind of influences or different kind of styles to them. And I think that this one from Nat is like you said, composed really well. And I like how it's different from the, the other vocal tracks that we've heard thus far on the album. Absolutely. Cool. So let's get into the next instrumental uh, track on the album, the sixth track on the album entitled one man's dream.
1: Yes. This is one uh, where we feature a different composer on the hit. We got, This one from Joe Zawinul and Charles Wright, who I think was a former drummer with Cannonball. And I believe they played this during kind of the first iteration of the Cannonball Adderley Quintet. And so they do that here. So that's kind of the background. I also love the rhythm section hits and the melody I find is very catchy. Zawinul is just such a great composer and he can do all sorts of different things in his compositions, but the way they, they, put together the melody with the rhythm section hits it's really golden it it it's pulled off really well it's the song is kind of an aaba form as well we get 16 bar a sections and then there's an eight bar bridge so that's kind of the form of this tune
0: yeah for sure i really like the the melody on this one and the arranging with the rhythm section hits on the melody and I like the bridge. Um, the bridge is a little different with almost like a call and response swing feel from the rhythm section and the melody. So I really like um, how this tune is arranged and kind of what the rhythm section's doing in response to, to the melody on this one.
1: Right. The melody's is great. Um, and then when we get into solos, Cannonball kind of comes in hot. He comes in with these rising 16th notes up the horn. He gets busier and a little more gritty on this sound, on his sound on the, on this solo. Around the one minute mark, you can hear that. I also love the falling note ideas at minute 125. There's lots of ideas and language in his solo. We talk about the jazz language and different licks or, or melodic movements we can do as an improviser. Some of those ideas are, are really used in this solo. And he, he disguises those kind of go to jazz licks um, because of how well he connects them and how well he moves on the horn I also love the idea he plays at 145 um, to 150 plays around with a kind of a four note idea and he moves it a number of times in different ways
0: yeah I definitely agree I think yeah Cannonball definitely comes in hot and he's swinging hard when he comes in I love the way that he mixes the bop lines um, with the like the motifs and the more soulful stuff um, but it is uh, interesting, to know, he gets very it's very bop oriented when he's playing over the bridge, which can be kind of common um, when playing over bridge changes is to get more linear and um, moving a little bit more. So, yeah, I definitely I like the way that because his style is very bop oriented in a, an era when when we're kind of past bop, but he's taken those influences of the the Charlie Parker um, and kind of mixing it into soul jazz, post-bop, hard bop. So I think that's really cool how he does that. And he, he still speaks to the traditions of, of bebop music.
1: 100%. Um, I have nothing to add because I was greatly put. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Later on, we get kind of Nat Adderley soloing. He has some really cool lines, too, on the the cornet. He has good use of space and movement. You know, kind of in, the end of one idea or phrase is really related to the start of his next idea and so both nat and cannonball Adderley display um a great use of phrasing when they're soloing
0: yeah yeah i definitely agree with that and i think that one thing that nat does really well here is he matches the energy and the swing that's set forth by cannonball on his solo which can be hard to do because cannonball comes in hot he comes in swinging but I think that Nat does a great job of coming in and kind of matching that energy and kind of giving the same energy to the track that Cannonball had already put forward. And I think Nat just also does a really good job of displaying some bop lines with some more bluesy licks on on this one as well.
1: Oh sure, yeah, for sure. Um, later on, there's this kind of six bar horn hit that transitions from the cornet uh, Nat Adderley solo into the key solo. And I find it a little confusing and unnecessary. It seems like it's kind of... It may have started in the wrong spot of the form or was meant to be used earlier and they forgot or, and they used it here. I don't know. I just find those little little horn hits in the transition of that solo confusing and, and really unnecessary.
0: Yeah, and one other small thing that um that kind of bothers me, and this is kind of throughout parts of the album is I really wish that the piano in the mix was more forward in the mix so you could hear the piano a little bit better especially when Joe is soloing sometimes I think that some of his solos you're just not getting enough of him in the mix and that's kind of it's kind of bothersome because that's what I want to hear when he's soloing I don't know if it has to do with I mean it can be hard to mic pianos at times because it's you know an interesting acoustic instrument the way that but i i just wish he was a little bit for, more forward in the in the mix on this one that's
1: because you're a keys player and you <laughs> love the piano and you want to hear it better but i no i think i think you have a good point it's a little low at times and you have to kind of dial in and really focus on what joe is doing on the piano a little more than you should
0: at least when he's soloing i when he's i don't mind if when he's not soloing but as the when you're producing this and you're mastering this, when he's soloing, I need him to be the loudest thing in the mix, the most forward thing in the mix. That's just I don't know. I feel like that's not too much to ask, even as a, a keyboard player.
1: Yeah, it's the bare minimum, I guess. Um, you know, I had that problem with the with the horn hits from that transition, but later on, there's some cool horn uh, shout chorus lines after the key solo, and that takes us one time through the form. And I love the interplay between the horns and the rhythm section that occurs. And um, in that kind of shout chorus, they have cannonball blow on the bridge, which is a very kind of common arrangement to do during a shout section. And then on the head out, they have a nice tag ending, a horn line moving upward to a final chord. And there's some really nice last minute fills from cannonball. And I love those kind of last minute saxophone fills that, uh, that, you know, I've, I was missing a little bit, you know, when we talked about Dexter Gordon's album Go, but here we, we get more of that from Cannibal.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree. I definitely like the that shout chorus. I like the arranging of the shout chorus, and um, I think there's really good dynamics as they bring the first A section kind of down a little bit. It's kind of a, a classic technique. They bring the first A section down a little bit, and then they kind of build it back through the form and get into that tag ending with the horns playing in the. Uh, the drum fill
1: yes the use of dynamics is both present in both situations where we have a a vocal on the recording and when we just have instrumental in both settings try and and really listen for how they have dynamic control and how they use movement and dynamics to the best of their ability and really that you know it just accentuates the song that they're playing so much more
0: yeah, yeah, I think this album is super consistent with the musicianship and, you know, the use of different techniques and dynamics as well. Yeah, it's not only Nancy, Nancy it's, you know, them as well, the quintet when they're playing on the, the instrumental tracks. So let's get into the seventh track on the album. We're back to a vocal track, um, and this track is entitled Happy Talk.
1: Yeah, Happy Talk is from a, sh- is from a show called South Pacific from Rodgers and Hammerstein. It's really a show tune and Rogers and Hammerstein um, contributed so much to the music for musicals. They were a writing duo responsible for so many great works, including Oklahoma, Carousel, and The Sound of Music. Rogers is credited with over 900 songs and has also previously worked with Lorenz Hart and later Oscar Hammerstein. His work really focused on character development rather than caricatures and lighthearted entertainment cliches. So he really helped develop not only the music that happened in the musical, but also the role of the characters played a much bigger, um, much bigger part in what was going on. And that engaged the audience so much more. Rogers was also the first person to win all four big entertainment awards, the Tony, the Oscar, the Grammy and the Emmy. And he's another one of these prominent Jewish American composers of the 20th century. We talk about, and also uh, just kind of a cool trivia question. He and lyricists, Lorenz Hart and Oscar Hammerstein all went to Columbia university. (laughs) There's a lot of similarity in those three in their backgrounds. And where they came from
0: yeah that's a lot of interesting history and a lot of great accomplishments i think it's incredible to note that he was the first person to win all four of those big awards you know from different you know from you know all the different uh academies so that's that's incredible um yeah so this song really screams show tune to me um i like the intro intro a lot there's like the bouncy uh trumpet hits on the intro and I think Nancy does a really good job showing her versatility. This is something I kind of talked about was all the the tunes, the vocal tunes especially, are very different on this album. We get kind of... Lots of different styles, and this is very much a show tune, which is common amongst jazz singers to do show tunes from the Great American Songbook. And um, I just really think that she does a great job executing this one and shows that she can sing in different ways. She can get bluesy. She can get soulful. She can sing over the standards as well, you know, a more swing standard as well as over the show tune.
1: Yeah, and I also love the arrangement of um, this track. The intro kind of starts with rhythmic ostinato, Accompanied by kind of cool staccato eighth note hits from Nat Adderley, and they're they're just using. Not only does Nancy shine, but they're using the the other players on this um, on this track, "Happy Talk," so well, and and it's like they're all contributing. It's not just a vocal feature, so I, I love that aspect of this of of this version of "Happy Talk." We eventually go into a four four driving tempo. Once the melody starts with Nancy coming in, I love the interjections of the opening rhythmic ostinato that are used as transitions from one 16-bar section to another. It really solidifies a cohesiveness to this um, particular version of Happy Talk. And also, it's cool to note, the only solos are really short 8-bar spurts from Cannibal Adderley. So there's not much soloing going on. But it's still a really cool track. And I love the the fade out on this one where Cannonball just, just starts blowing and, and he gets a little more into it. Unfortunately, they faded out. You know, I like I want to hear what Cannonball is doing just a little bit longer. But the fade out works well with the overall effect of the song. And the whole track length is only two minutes and 25 seconds. And so we talked about <laughs> how a couple of the the tunes on this are really short but there's still a lot in them um, so
0: yeah and i think it's it's kind of interesting because most of the vocal tunes are a little bit shorter but what they do to kind of give you more of what we want from the you know the rhythm section and the whole quintet is they put in the instrumental tracks so we get that you know we can get some of that a little bit more stretched and solos from them on the instrumental tracks and they do a good job of just letting the vocal tracks feature Nancy Wilson really well and not overshining what she's doing that you know they they put in those instrumentals so that that's the part where we can listen to them really playing so yeah I think that one thing that stands out is how well of a job um the quintet does here just letting Nancy and her vocals shine and they just add to it with the accompaniment um and their their short solos I think that's just it's just really highlighting Nancy's singing and I really like what they're doing and I really like the rhythm section on this. Um, we've got to give them their flowers here. Um, lots of cool rhythmic ideas throughout the entire song. So I really like what, what they're doing in the background on this one.
1: That's right. Even though the rhythm section don't doesn't really get solos, what they do um, is so complimentary in the uh, kind of range of their musical ability also shines on this. Um, And then we got the next track, which is, uh, if you're listening, make sure, you know, again, we're going by the order of the original LP record. So then the next one is an instrumental called Never Say Yes. And it's an original tune by Nat Adderley. So his composition, once again. And on this one, we get a lot of Miles Davis influence, not only from Nat's sound, but also a little bit from Nat's solo on this one
0: yeah and i think the composition of this as well is somewhat miles davis-esque um with some of the different elements you kind of get a modal a section where it's not really the chords aren't really moving you're staying on one chord and but then you get a turnaround style b section where you kind of get some some uh movement through the the chord progression so i think um yeah a lot of the the elements of this tune feel like a Miles Davis composition with that use of modalism that we see um, in Miles Davis. And then the muted trumpet melody with lots of space that Nat plays, is also very Miles Davis-esque. I also
1: like how kind of when they start, um, there's no chordal instrument. There's no piano. It's just Nat with um, bass and brushes on the snare. And then the piano comes in later. And I really like that, you know, you you can use those instruments in a lot of different ways and I appreciate the difference that Nat Adderley uses on this melody and how he treats and uses the rhythm section. You don't always have to start with everybody and you don't always have to end with everybody. And that's a cool thing about this track.
0: Yeah, yeah, I definitely uh, agree with that. And I think um, one thing that's interesting about this track is that they keep the feel of the head for Nat's solo, and then they go into a four swing feel for Cannonball and Joe Zawinol's solos on this one.
1: That's right. You don't always have to, you know, as as a rhythm section player, you don't always have to do the same thing behind every solo. You can vary it. You can change the feel. A lot of times that comes from, you know, a prepared arrangement from a horn player, but also sometimes it's kind of on the spot if you're, you know, on a live gig there's a lot of different ways to 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 treat each player that you're behind and how you interact with the soloist can be different because each soloist is different. So, you know, it's not copy paste so much as it is really engaging and treat each soloist a little differently as a rhythm section player. Um, and then, you know, Nat kind of has that, that first solo. A lot of a lot of similarities between his playing on this and miles Davis. Like we mentioned, there's some cool blues lines and a really good use of space. And he has a direct sound to miles Davis right at the one minute and 10 second mark, um, just the way he's moving on the trumpet is kind of classic early sixties. Well, really early to mid, you know, sixties miles Davis. Um, so it's cool to hear, hear those similarities. And then after that. Cannibal blows and kind of starts right as Nat is ending his solo, and I don't know. Cannibal kind of creeps into Nat's space a little bit, in my opinion, where he's starting the solo. It's not right at the top of the form. It's kind of right before it, and I don't know. I just feel like Cannibal is is sneaking into Nat Adderley's solo, and it's kind of distracting. and And I just I don't really like that transition.
0: Yeah, I think it's. Um... Yeah, it kind of feels like maybe he stepped on his toes a little bit and didn't let him finish his idea before he started, you know, playing. Um, I think one thing that's interesting to note, and like you said, is that Nats playing is kind of reminiscent of that of the Miles Davis feel. So I think it's it's really interesting to note. You said you don't have to do the same things over different people's solos as a, a rhythm section, and so the feel that. Nat's giving us is that Miles Davis feel. So I think it's very fitting that they would keep that same feel from the, the melody, which is kind of more the, the modal, like, you know, kind of drawn out and feel. And then, but then when Cannonball starts sewing, that's when they get into the swing feel, which matches the style that, that Cannonball is playing, you know, Cannonball is, is swinging really hard. Um, I really like the first lick that he plays on it um, after he steps on Nat's toes a little bit. Um, And I I really like this one, although it's a a short solo from Cannonball. I like what he's doing. I think he has great ideas, lots of energy, intriguing lines, and um, he definitely uses the full range of the horn, which he's really good at, but he does that really well here.
1: That's right. Cannonball has some gritty altissimo on this solo, and he really swings really hard. He has some heavy eighth notes towards the end of a solo I really like. He's really digging into that eighth note swing feel. And he's treating those notes a little differently than he normally would. And that's a cool thing to do at the end of your solo as a sax player or as an instrumentalist in general. And then after Cannonball, there's a, there's a cool uh, piano solo, a lot of linear movement again. And then Nat comes back in with the melody.
0: Yeah, and one thing I want to say about this piano solo, because this stood out to me the most, is... I really feel like his solo gets drowned out in the mix here. I really like what he's playing, but I think that the mix, I wish he was a little bit more forward in the mix. Um, if you disagree, I mean, you'll have to listen to it for yourself and you might see what I'm talking about. It just feels like he's not like the most loud thing that's playing. And that's like, all right, when you're a soloist, that's when you know you want to be front and center. So at this point, this one, it really hurt me because I really like this solo, but I just feel like, why is he the same? volume as the rest of the rhythm section you know so i really like his solo he uses space really well and he has lots of good ideas and themes on on his solo here
1: yeah and this is a good example of what you're talking about when we're talking about mixing or hearing everything at the right volume in relation to everything else i think i think i agree with you on this one that the piano could come up a little bit not only in in focus from the mix but um just how how the rhythm section is is playing behind the piano um you know that piano could could, could come out just a little bit more and then uh later on that comes back in they do the ostinato and the rhythm section into a two feel towards the latter half of the form on the melody out and they have kind of a nice ride out they're writing it out at the end and they um and then that has some really cool low notes that end at uh, that occur at the very end of the song from from his cornet, and I think that's really cool. the The use of the different ranges of the trumpet or cornet that Nat Adderley is getting on on his tune, never say yes.
0: Yeah, I definitely I like this uh, this ride out, and it kind of taps into that modal kind of feel that we get in the A sections and how they're kind of hanging on that and riding out on that. So I like the way that they kind of ride this one out and they feature Nat as they ride it out on this one, you know, as he is. He's really featured on this tune. So let's get into uh, the ninth track on this album. This uh, is entitled The Masquerade Is Over and another vocal tune on the album.
1: Correct. It's it's an it's kind of a also a go to ballad for a lot of vocalists. It's originally written by a cat named Allie Rubel, spelled W-R-U-B-E-L. His full name, Elias Paul Rubel, one of the Jewish-American composers we always talk about. He studied music at Columbia University. He also played saxophone and clarinet in a lot of dance bands. Um, He got around really well around Timpan Alley, worked a lot around there. Eventually had a contract with Warner Brothers and was a songwriter in Hollywood. He later wrote for Disney, um, and he's kind of also known for composing Gone With The Wind and zippity Doodah." So that's Ali Rubel.
0: Yeah, and I think one thing that that stands out to me getting into this track a little bit is the rhythm section, which we've mentioned. They are just super tight on this album. Um, I think that Joe Zawinol is shining on this track and i think one thing that he does incredibly is his job comping nancy wilson and he does it in a very sensitive to manner he's very sensitive as to what she's singing and how he's approaching um you know his comping and i think he has an awesome there's a lot of color to the chords um and when we say color we're usually speaking of extensions and different voicings that use um in chords that give chords different colors um, are like, you know, kind of tonal sounds to them. So yeah, I think his, his comping is great and he just does it a great, he has a great use of, you know, different tones and colors and sounds, you know, and different, um, extensions. So I think, yeah, it's a, it's a great job to highlight Nancy's, um, playing. He does a great job comping there.
1: Absolutely. It is a really nice piano line at the start when the track begins. Also, I just want to say it's, It's hard when you're kind of having one instrument start, then the lyric comes in on beat one and everybody else comes in with the lyric. And you can hear how tough that can be on this. Nancy comes in with the word your as kind of a pickup. And then the keys and bass come in on the next beat on the lyric eyes. And they don't quite come in together. Their their beat ones are not, uh, at the very start of it, not aligned. Um, but even though that's not quite together and the bass is a smidge later on that entrance than the keys from then on, they're, they're right smack dab together. So it's not a big deal, but it's a cool thing to listen for right there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely interesting to listen to, you know, as musicians, when people, you know, they don't hit something right exactly as they should, but they're so good, that the within no time it's it's together. You know they don't they they might not all hit on one exactly at the same time, but then by beat three it's just like right in the pocket. So I think that's it's definitely interesting. We listen for those things when we're listening to albums.
1: Yeah, and despite that little flaw, Sam Jones really has a nice moving bass line right after that. All throughout this tune, he's kind of feeling the two feel yet also moving sometimes on beats three and four with quarter notes and sometimes not. So you can hear the variety of, of of the way the bass is treating this ballad. And there's a lot of times the bass and keys move simultaneously together, feeling that to feel in sync with one another and then hitting some quarter notes also together really well. And that's kind of really quite impressive to hear them move so well together. Usually it's a little, um, you know, it's a, it's, it's a little, uh, not six, suc- not succinct the way the piano would be on top of the bass in a ballad, but here they're right, right together in sync. And that's really cool.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that just speaks to like how tight they are. They obviously have played together a lot and they communicate really well to be able to, to do those things, just like, you know, right together without any, you know, any kind of, lag or anything like you're saying it's really succinct in the way that they do that and that's just incredible how how tight they are on this one
1: yeah and nancy also her her ability to taper off her phrase endings is really coming out on this this particular song her use of dynamics is of course amazing and minute marker 110 to 117 she uses her vibrato continuously connecting two lyric phrases rather than tapering off one phrase into nothing and then starting another one. So she does not leave space in there. And that's a really different, very cool way to use her vibrato. And you can get a sense of, of the variety of her phrasing on this one.
0: Yeah. I think Nancy on this one, her use of vibrato, vibrato is brilliant and her control. It's just so incredible. Um, her vibrato and her tone, they're just very warm on this one. Um, and I really like that, that element of this tune. Um, and she's very, very tenuto in on this one with her style, the way that she holds out notes. Um, and tenuto kind of means that, um, in music, a definition is that you give the note, it's full value. So if it's a whole note, you give it, all four beats of of the bar and you hold it out until the very end so i think that that's something that's interesting to note is sometimes with singers if the song's written in a certain way they might not they might finish the phrase and cut the last note off a little bit a little bit short but the tenuto approach that she has she's holding everything out she's giving um, all the notes their full values and it's very full and she's able to use her vibrato when she's holding those notes out um, really well so i think that's that's interesting she doesn't cut off any notes short she holds them out and she gives them the you know the full value which helps with her her phrases a lot
1: yeah she's very attentive and specific with every syllable she's singing um every note that's coming out is you know she's giving her full attention and um just treating everything as if it is important and that's the another great thing about Nancy Wilson also I think Joe Zawinul kind of shines on this one a little bit more his piano feels fills excuse me around 132 to 140 222 to 230 and around 310 um, are really well done and they complement Nancy's vocal just beyond expectation
0: Yeah yeah I think that's if you're a piano player definitely listen to what Joe is doing on this. And how to, we, we spoke about, you know, in our question, our jazz question of the day, like how to play with singers, Joe is, this is a lesson on how to play with singers on the piano with what he's doing on this, on this, on this track. So, um, one thing about, uh, Nancy that I want to get into heard, heard. Vocal control is on display at the minute. This really stood out to me, minute marker 240, when she says, with tears in my eyes. Um, I just think that that phrase, the way she phrases that, is incredible. So go and listen to that phrase, particularly. And I think one thing that's interesting to note is the way that she's able to pull the vibrato from deep in her diaphragm at the end when she's really starting to belt out her phrases is just incredible. She's just able to pull it from so deep and it gives it so much, like I said, that warmth to it and that, you know, that fullness. Um, And so she's really good at the control. She's able to pull her vibrato from different places, whether it's from her diaphragm or whether it's from higher up. It kind of gives those vibratos different feels and she's just It seems like she's a master of all styles. So when she needs to get into a deeper range and a deeper vibrato and something that's more warm, she's able to pull from deeper in her diaphragm. And so I just think that that's an awesome use of of technique there and from, from Nancy.
1: Absolutely. There's a couple other key moments I want to mention. I love the vocal inflection at 328. She's kind of more speaking and very bluesy right there. At 331, she has some really kind of faster moving vibrato. And again, she tapers it off so well. Um, especially at 338, I love the vocal belting. There's a really big dynamic range on this one from the vocal more so than a couple of the other, uh, tunes on the album. She kind of really belts out on this one and the emotive aspect of what she's doing. She does it so well. You can hear that at 350 and at 357. She gets louder. It's more emotional. There's this. There's just such musical ability being displayed from Nancy Wilson. It's incredible. I love the lengthy, fast vibrato she does at 401 to 407 to end it. And then there's kind of a final chord and some last minute or really last second flickers from the piano.
0: Yeah. And I think one thing that um, I'll close out with on this one that's interesting to note is that it's an interesting choice not to have any horns on this track. But I think it's a stylistic choice that I really appreciate. I think it really allows the rhythm section to stand out. And we've talked about how tight they are on this track and how great of a job that Joe Zawinul does on this track. So it might seem strange. I think it's a really, really Good approach to just have the rhythm section. It really allows them to stand out on this one.
1: It is kind of weird to not have Cannonball Adderley on a Cannonball Adderley quintet album. Yeah, but not even a,
0: <laughs> a note. He doesn't play a single note.
1: He does not play a single note. Although there's a kind of kind of a history of of this occurring at different uh, times in jazz. Miles Davis is known for his Prestige recordings that he kind of had to just record in and out really quickly because he had a change in contract with a different recording, uh, company. So he had to, he had to just pump out, um, some last minute albums. And there's a couple tracks from those recordings where it's just the rhythm section and no Miles Davis. And so that, that kind of is reminding, you know, this is kind of reminding me of that. There's no horns on this, on the masquerade is over, but I don't, I didn't need them. All I, what I got was exactly what I needed. All I wanted was the emotion from Nancy Wilson and the, the light complimentary, um, lines from the piano. I I have everything I need. I think that may be why we don't have horns on this because we have so much from Nancy on this one.
0: Yeah, for sure. One thing I want to get into a little bit is you kind of touched on it with Miles Davis, but this has happened a few times throughout jazz history where guys will sign with certain record labels for a certain number of albums. Say they sign for like eight albums or something, they're going to put eight albums out, and they'll put like three or four or five out, and then they want to be done with that record label. So what they'll do, this has happened multiple times in jazz history, is they'll just go to the studio with the same group, and they'll just record three albums all at once. And so that kind of speaks to what you're saying with Miles. He didn't even play on some of the tracks. He's like, all right, you guys play this one. You know, They might have done them all at the same time. So that's happened a few times throughout jazz history where guys are like, I just need to get these three albums out so I can move over to this other label. So they'll go into the studio and record three albums within a couple days or you know, a week or something. That's
1: right. They'll they'll just knock out some standards and, you know, it's kind of more head chart oriented, not too much arranging and they just knock it out and um I'm yeah, I'm specifically thinking of Miles Davis on at least one of those Prestige recordings where it's Red Garland on piano. And there's one where it's just Red Garland in the rhythm section, no trumpet to be had on a trumpet-led <laughs> recording session.
0: Miles had probably left the session. They were like, he was like, I I gotta go. You guys just do another tune. <laughs> like, <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, we'll have to look up the specifics of that. But you're yeah. right. It 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 happens. It's happened more than you would think.
0: Yeah. So cool. Let's get in. That's just an interesting kind of jazz history thing. When guys sign with certain labels, they'll sign for multiple albums, and then sometimes. They don't want to be there anymore, so they you know, have to do what they have to do. So let's get into uh, the 10th track as we're nearing the end of this album. This is the last instrumental track on the album, and it's the instrumental we talked about, the Sam Jones original, entitled Unit 7.
1: That's right. This one is kind of a well-known composition amongst jazz players. It is a Sam Jones original. Um, it's probably one of the two Sam Jones tunes Cats Will Call on a gig. This version, I will say, it seems a little bit slow. Um, it's right around 180 beats per minute. There's a classic version from and Kelly with West Montgomery, and that one's faster, right around 220 beats per minute. And I think uh, I'm used to hearing it a little bit faster, right around that 200 to 230 mark. And here it, it's, I mean, it is cool. Um, the tempo they use, it's just key to note that the tempo of this particular version of unit seven is quite a bit slower than you would expect.
0: Yeah, I definitely, I like the form of this tune. Um, It kind of has a 12 bar blues feel, but with a bridge, which is, um, can be, you know, kind of a common jazz arranging kind of thing to do. Um, But yeah, I I really like the form of this and uh, I like cannonball has a way of coming out hot with his solos and I, I like his approach. It's very cannonball of him. Some guys will come in and they'll kind of use some space at first and they'll kind of like really like build up their solos and cannonball will just come in hot a lot of times. Sometimes he's he'll just come in playing and so Max, um I was gonna ask you what do you think about him coming into solos with so much energy when you might learn in like a more academic setting that like all right you want to start with space there's kind of like this formulaic a way to to approach solos where you might start with more space and then build the idea cannonball usually comes in pretty hot with a lot of energy and a lot is going on at the beginning of his solos
1: well my question is what makes what cannonball is doing not formulaic it's just a it's just a different formula I love the, you know, a lot of players may not think about how they start a solo or how they end a solo big picture. And Cannonball is a great um, example of a different way you can start your solo. I think it's fantastic. I love coming in hot on some solos and then other solos, you know, you kind of develop and you, you, you kind of slowly build your solo. The great Johnny Griffin, tenor saxophonist once um said or known for saying multiple times that you kind of want to start out your solo as kind of introducing yourself to the audience or you know to the listening um public if if you know we're talking about a a recording session or something and so you kind of start out um with less energy typically you know like you would starting out a conversation with a stranger you know hi my name is this is what i do What do you do? And the conversation builds. And so, a lot of times we want our solo to mimic that. Like we're starting out a conversation with the audience or with the rhythm section, but also a different way to go about starting your solo is just coming in hot and then you make sure you have movement throughout after the fact. So you can come in hot and then you come back down and you want, you know, you want to do something differently as your solo progresses, so that you keep your solo interesting. But I think, you know, there's a lot of different ways to start out your solo. And this is a great example of a different way to do it.
0: Yeah, I really like what you said about movement. That's what I was going to mention is, yeah, you you might learn to like start, you know, just form, formulate every solo in the same way. But I think what's more important than you know, just having a formula is just having movement in your solo. You wouldn't want a solo that just comes in hot and then you're just, you stay hot and heavy the whole time. Like that doesn't move at all. That's going to get really busy. And you don't want a solo that comes in more spacious and just stays that way the whole time you want movement in your soul you want your soul to go somewhere to tell some kind of story so i think that's a great point is that it's more about the story of your solo and expressing what you're trying to express than necessarily you have to start every solo in the same way you can start a solo out in a million different ways um we're kind of talking uh a listener question that we got and um, Thad Jones started his solo out with, uh, some tritone substitution, which was different. And I think that's just, you know, it's about where you go, not necessarily where you start. It's about the journey of the solo, not necessarily the starting point. So I think that's a, a really good thing to, to note and you don't have to start every solo out with space. You can do it. And I love, uh, Cannonball's approach here.
1: Yes. And the fact that you can start your solo out in different ways. Also works to grasp the listener's attention. You know, if you kind of start out the same way all the time, you might, you know, you might not gain that attention in, in, in your solo, but because he comes in hot, it it's, it's different, but it's not too far off. And it's just a different formula. In my opinion, I also think there's a lot of differences in his movement on this one. There's some more downward motion, you know, going from the top of the horn down in his lines that are really nice. He also has a cool quote at 118. It's almost the melody to tenor madness from Sonny Rollins and John Coltrane. I also love his idea at 158 where he takes a a note or really an idea, but he does it in different octaves or at an interval of a fifth or fourth or something. And that's cool to do, you know, one, three or four note idea in one range of the horn and then do that exact idea in a different range. And you can kind of go up and down the horn like that, you know, with that idea. And that's, that's a cool thing that he does right around 158 on this one.
0: Yeah. I really, really like cannonball. So on this one, he, I like how they kind of stretch this one um, and let cannonball stretch a bit on this one. He's, he's just a beast and it's evident on the solo. You kind of get that, that, that quintessential cannonball style um i also love the idea that he plays from 117 to kind of the 122 mark you mentioned it like that kind of hinting at um uh what was it the tenor madness um, kind of hint there i really like how he does that um, he uses the entire range of the horn, which he does really well. He does that on this track um, really well. And he really starts to show off some chops around like the two-minute mark. And he's got all the chops. He just really... I like what he's doing there. He's not holding back on this one. He's kind of giving you lots of energy and giving you all that he has. And for that reason, I think this is probably my favorite and maybe the best cannonball solo on the album where we're really getting getting that full cannonball experience...
1: That's a good point. There's a lot more double time lines in this solo. His technique um, is displayed really well and, and comes out on this one. And I think you're right. I think just, just how much movement and how much Cannonball is putting in. It it's so energetic and so moving. Um, it, it speaks really well to this particular track, you know, the tune unit seven. And it you're you you know, you mentioned earlier it's basically a blues with a bridge. So on a blues form, normally 12-bar blues, um, we can tend to, to stretch out a little bit. And there's a history, especially if we're talking about Kansas City jazz, of that happening. You know, a, a lot of times, late-night jam sessions, you could do a blues for 20 minutes because of all the different players that want to blow on it. You know, you get four tenor saxes, three trumpets, couple trombones, different piano players. <laughs> so it could go, you know, a blues can go from anywhere from two minutes to twenty-two minutes to thirty-two minutes, really, if we think about it. So here, you know, I think "Cannonball" is 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 coming out more because of the form of the song, and you know, it's it's over time become pretty well known, and it's 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 a little I don't want to say easy to blow over, but it's definitely more um, comfortable, I think, to really stretch out on this one.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. And it's, you know, the form being easy, it's not, yeah, it's it's not like it's a, it's not like giant steps to where you're really having to, you can just blow and, you know, kind of get into some more, some different ideas without having to think too much about the form because it is a blues form for the most part that feels pretty comfortable for people to to play over. So I think that's a, a great point there, Max. And that's probably why we get that stretch from Cannonball and a little bit more comfort in kind of the, the way he approaches it.
1: That's right. Also, I think Nat Solo is very cool. Um, He's kind of very playful. He plays with one idea and develops it as much as he can rather than play, you know, kind of bop lines up and down the horn more like Cannonball does. Although, you know, that's a little simplistic to think about, but I think Nat is just a little more playful in his, in his um, improvisations.
0: Yeah, I definitely that's kind of the same exact feeling I got from from Nat Solo. He uses a lot of like motifs and ideas and kind of plays around with them. Um, and it's a, a pretty cool contrast from Cannonball. Um, Cannonball was really getting into you know the lines and and chopping it up, but uh, Nat was able to you know just kind of use some fun ideas and, and play with them a little bit more. So that was a, I like that contrast a lot. And then I really like the bluesy elements of Joe's uh, Zawinul. So on the piano on this one, um, this is we get like more of the blues feel from him. When that's maybe not an element we've gotten as much from him on this album. So I like. How, uh, how much he develops his ideas on this solo and the use of those those blues elements.
1: We also get uh, more from that kind of rhythmic left hand that we were talking about earlier from Zawinul during this solo. And just the way the relationship between what his left hand and his right hand are doing, you can hear really what jo- Joe Zawinul is is about and, and how he's approaching his solos on this album from this... Um, this unit seven solo from the piano
0: yeah he definitely has a unique left hand style it's very rhythmic and it's kind of different from from some other players so it's interesting to listen to the way that he approaches um his his left hand technique
1: right and then the arrangement on this one is a little bit more predictable the head out is similar to the head in and then they just ride out a couple of extra a sections and then they fade out so the you know Kind of just a more comfortable form, more comfortable tune, and a comfortable arrangement as well.
0: Yeah, and I really liked it. Yeah, they can use that to really show their talent, and you know they're they're playing on that one. So cool. Let's get into the the final track on the album, the final vocal track on the album, uh, entitled "A Sleepin' Bee."
1: Yes, this is a song written by Harold Arlen, and there are some contributing lyrics by Truman Capote. It was first in 19, uh, first used in a 1954 musical, House of Flowers. The musical was a real flop. It, uh, it was a dud. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the song, A Sleepin' Bee, that was in that show became a real hit. Barbara Streisand, for instance, is quoted as saying it's her favorite song to sing. Um, again, written by Harold Arlen, who was the son of a Jewish cantor. He played and he he sang in the Buffalo, New York area, then moving to New York City in his 20s, working as a vaudeville uh, accompanist. And then he wrote the tune Get Happy in 1929, and that kind of set off his compositional career. He wrote a bunch for movies, a bunch for musicals. He wrote the music to The Wizard of Oz, and he's also credited with 500 songs, including That Old Black Magic, over the Rainbow, Blues in the Night, and Come Rain or Come Shine. And and those tunes, especially Over the Rainbow, Come Rain or Come Shine, are pretty well covered by jazz musicians. So Harold Arlen is a key composer, um, not only of, of American music, but of a lot of songs that jazz players cover.
0: Yeah, for sure, and I think uh, this this song has kind of a a fun feeling to it. And I feel like it's a fun way to to end the album with this with this competition or uh, composition. um One thing about the melody, I love how the melody features uh, the walking bass line and then Nancy singing the melody. I think it's it has a fun feeling to it.
1: Yes, it's a cool arrangement of what the rhythm section is doing behind Nancy i do want to say i really do not like the beginning of this track of this of this song it kind of starts out with the rubato solo piano and then the bass and nancy come in kind of randomly i feel like that that those first few seconds from the solo piano have nothing to do with what comes after and i just scratch my head going why is that in there i don't understand I really would have liked just the bass starting out for four bars and then Nancy comes in or something. I just think whatever Joe is doing and and I question the decision to, to start the way that they did.
0: Yeah, I I agree with that. It feels weird. It feels kind of out of place. It doesn't feel like that matches the energy of the song or what they're going to play next. It's just like kind of like... Yeah, this intro and then just completely different feel when they come in with the walking bassline. They could have just done that walking bassline and then let Nancy come in over it. I definitely can see what you're saying there.
1: Right, a lot of times when you start out Roboto, you end it, you know, in in relation of what's coming next, either in tempo or there's space and then you start and and you know, it's a similar tempo to how you started, but here the tempos are so different. The instrumentation is so different; it just leaves me scratching my head. But I do love when that bass comes in and when Nancy starts singing. To me, that's when the song begins. Don't listen to the first four seconds.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> I definitely see what you're saying there. I I really like Nancy. I mean, as we've we said a million times, like. Nancy, her range displayed on this one is incredible um, and she has just so much range to give, so I think that's one thing that stands out. Her singing's just awesome and so she's doing it again. I think her range is really what, what stands out to me um, on this one.
1: Her range comes out and it's a little more playful and I get a sense of delight. Yeah. This one is a very happy song and that was one of the things I think I alluded to earlier. Nancy and Cannibal wanted to make an album that gave off the emotion of happiness. And so uh, Nancy does that really well. It's also an interesting form of the song. It's kind of a, a prime 16 bar. And then there's kind of a a 20 bar section. Um, So it's a little different, different form. And then we get into solos, cannonball solos, a bit more relaxed and it kind of effortlessly, effortlessly swings. And it's just one time through an a section. Um, so kind of a shorter solo, but Cannonball does well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I like Cannonball's solo on this one. Um, lots of lines from them, but it's, it's good. Nothing that Cannonball is going to play on this album is not going to be good. So this is, it's a good solo and it kind of fits the, the feel of the, of the track with how he's swinging, you know, and the way he's playing over it.
1: Right. After that, Nancy comes back in and, she kind of features her longer vibrato and then there's some really cool horn hits behind her. Um and then there's no more horns or piano after the 2:14 mark. So it's interesting how they end the use of the horns right there. The song ends with Nancy accompanied by just bass and drums. There's a line by the bass to end it with kind of a held out note and then I I don't know. I kind of like how how they started I'm not huge on the ending. I wish they kind of should have. I think they should have started like they ended. Excuse me. Flip what I just said.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I didn't
1: like the As I mentioned, I didn't like the beginning, but I love the ending. Yeah. So why not start out that way? Um, again, that beginning piano rubato section just makes no sense to me. So why not just start out with bass and Nancy and the way they ended? Uh, I, I don't get it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, I, I definitely get what you're saying there. I like the ending and it's like kind of a playful, fun song and it doesn't feel like the rubato piano like really has anything to do with that kind of bouncy, you know, bass line and, you know, that that walking bass line. So, yeah, I feel like they could have just started out with drums and bass and Nancy singing and kind of a, a swing in, you know, walk in for feel. And that would have been perfectly fine. But yeah, so just interesting there. I do like the way that they ended it and maybe they should have. Should have started the, the track that way. I, I do agree. So cool. Well, that's the last track on the album. Um, let's get into our top threes and our not-so-hot tracks uh, on the album before we get into our overall thoughts. Max, so what are your your top three and your, your not-so-hot?
1: Yeah, my top three, I you know, I'm a sucker for ballads, and this album features a number of ballads, and it, it has Nancy Wilson treat them so well. So my number one is the number one song on the album, Save Your Love for Me. She treats that just so uh, excellently. You get a, a sense for everything she's about from that track. Um, it's kind of almost an R&B pop ballad, but here obviously it's a jazz ballad, and the way they do it to me is the version, at least the jazz version. Sometimes I've I've heard this song covered by other people, um, and it just doesn't do it for me. You know, the great Scott Hamilton, tenor player has recorded it. Um, Tia Fuller, alto sax player has recorded it and you know, they're all great versions, but it just doesn't do it for me because this version is awesome. And so well done to me. This is the version of save you, save your love for me. Number two is the, is another great ballad. The masquerade is over. And then number three, One Man's Dream is is my third. It's an instrumental. I love the arrangement and just everything that goes on with the melody on that one. My not so hot is Never Say Yes, which is the one that's a Nat Adderley composition that really alludes to Miles Davis. I feel like it has nothing to do with anything else on the album. It's it, I mean, that it's cool to do something different. But to me, because it's so similar to Miles, and it's um, not, again, not really related to the other songs on the album. I think the other Nat Adderley compositions are 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 a little catchier, a little more fun, a little more playful. And this one, to me, it's just too much Miles, and nothing else on the album is reminiscent of Miles. So I just don't get it.
0: Yeah, I definitely get what you're what you're saying with that. And my top three is gonna have some some very similar feelings and sentiments to yours. My number one song as well is save your love for me. I just love this song. I love the composition. I love the changes and I just love Nancy singing over it. It's just, and no one else has done this song like she has, like you said. And I think that is kind of what elevates it to that top spot is like, this is the the recording of that song. Um, Yeah. It's just a great tune. Yeah. It doesn't really feel like a jazz tune, but it's, it is a jazz, I mean, it's jazz in the way that they're doing it, you know? So yeah, I just love, I love this tune. I I think it's different and it stands out to me. Um, so I love it. And then it's, um,
1: it's become a jazz tune because of Nancy Wilson's version.
0: And that is what makes it number one. That's a great, great point. Yeah. She's made it a jazz tune. And so that for that reason, number one, absolutely deserved. Um, second, I have the masquerade is over as well. A ballad has just played so well. Um, I just love how they comp, uh, Nancy Wilson in the rhythm sections, just really standing out on that one. Joe is standing out. So yeah, I think that's, I think it's important to have some of the singing. I really like a lot of the instrumental, instrumental tracks, but I think it's important to have some of the singing tracks that feature Nancy in our top heavily featured in our top three and those are two great great tracks on the album um but for the third track in my not or in my uh top three um at number three i have unit seven which is the one written by sam jones and the track where they get to stretch a little bit and i think that's max and i talked about how that's kind of our style so this one really spoke to me i just love the playing it just they're really killing on this one um so yeah, for that reason, um, that's my, my favorite instrumental track on, on the album. And then for my not so hot, uh, I ha- I went with one of the vocal tunes. I went with the tune happy talk, which is the show tune. I like Max said about the, like the miles track, the, or the, you know, the never say yes. I feel like this vocal track is the one that kind of, I, it's cool that they did a show tune, but I don't know. It just doesn't really do much for me being on this jazz album. Um, it's not bad, but it just it doesn't it doesn't really speak to me. I don't really I don't get much from it. So yeah. I'm sorry
1: if if Nancy Wilson is singing on a on a song, it will never be a not so hot for me. So that is I-
0: true. Nancy Wilson does the the tune incredibly. I just don't really like the tune itself. So that's that's where I that's what happens for me, but yeah, Nancy Wilson executes it incredibly, but I just, I don't know. It's the song selection. It just, it doesn't speak to me as much as all the others on the album. All right, whatever. <laughs> Let's get into our, our overall ratings and and thoughts on the album. So um, this album is a classic collaboration between a fairly new to the scene, but soon to become legendary singer in Nancy Wilson and a veteran saxophonist and legend, um, in the jazz community that is Cannonball Adderley, probably the most well-renowned alto saxophonist of all time. Um, This album truly does have a bit of everything with the mix of vocal tunes and instrumental ones. And we spoke to how the vocal tunes are just so many different styles, from soulful to bluesy to show tunes to jazz standards. I really like how this album has such a great mix of tunes. Um, At first, I was kind of uncertain about the mixing of the vocal and the instrumental tunes um it kind of felt like they're kind of jumping back and forth but after like a comprehensive listening to this album i've grown to love the mix of tunes on the album i love how they give us nancy and they highlight her in the vocal tunes and then the instrumental tunes really highlight everyone else in the quintet so i i love that the ballads from cannonball and nancy are top notch. Um, Nancy steps up to the plate and she knocks it out of the park in a very big way in this one. Her control is just absolutely incredible at all times from her pitch to her vowel placement to her use of vibrato and phrasing. She definitely, this is, she establishes herself as a jazz singing powerhouse on this one. She is here to stay and it's the start of just a legacy from from Nancy Wilson Um, one thing I mentioned, uh, which I'll mention in my overall thoughts, I think the piano does get drowned out in the mix at times, especially during solos, um, as well as Nat on trumpet at times, which is, um, inexplicable. It could come from recording technology and the way that the album was recorded. I don't know. I wasn't in the studio, but that could, there can be struggles in recording piano and recording muted trumpet at times, but that kind of left me scratching my head and there were times when the mixing i was focusing on that instead of focusing on the album and i want it i don't that doesn't want it i don't want that to be the case when i'm listening to such a great album um but overall this is a, a classic jazz album that is well revered throughout history and it stood the test of time for a reason it's definitely one that you do not want to miss this is one that you have to listen to as a jazz, someone who appreciates jazz. It's just an incredible vocal jazz album and Nancy Wilson's coming out party. So for that reason, I give it a 9.1 out of 10.
1: Yes, this is a very unique recording. I think it brings together the minds and the, the skills of, of both Cannonball Adderley and Nancy Wilson really well. And they're not only great musicians, but they're also friends. And it's a very collaborative effort. It seems like everything you know, kind of goes in and out of each other really well. The way they play together is complimentary. It's not, oh, it's me, 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 me versus me, 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 me versus me, me, me. It's, oh, we are playing together, Cannibal Adderley Quintet with Nancy Wilson. Nat Adderley playing behind Nancy Wilson and complimenting what she's doing, not taking away the attention from her. And so this is just a unique recording because of that. I also think everyone really kind of has some moments on here. Nad, Joe Zawano, Sam Jones have a number of, of great moments and great features throughout the album, the flexibility, the style, the dynamics and the overall musicality of Nancy is well expressed and her exquisite ballad singing is very well displayed. The album nicely ties in the compositions and the compositional skills of Nat Adderley, as well as the rhythm section players because they get to do a Sam Jones tune, they get to do a Joe Zawinol tune and a number of Nats tunes. So everybody's compositional talents are also a, a key part to this album. Cannonball's playing is on point throughout the whole recording and both brothers Adderley compliment, you know, as I mentioned earlier, Nancy Wilson so fantastically. All three are working together to accomplish the making of a record that features their strengths and succeeds in showcasing nancy's ability i am en- i enjoy the differences in the instrument on the vocal tracks and having both on this album the instrumentation the arranging displays a lot of maturity as well from the players there are a few interesting moments i'm not too big on such as unnecessary introductions or some parts that don't move as well as everything else that's going on but there's also kind of a predictable treatment from some of the arranging that occurs behind the vocal. You know, like I said, if Nat's comping or, you know, kind of catting behind the vocal, then Cannibal would solo, and then they would switch it. So it's a little predictable. I would have liked for at least one tune to have whoever is behind Nancy on the melody also have the solo. That would have just given a little more variety to the arrangement to me. But despite that, they they treat every, thong, every song really well. And again, overall, it's a great album. I think it must be included in any serious jazz record collection in order for that collection to be deemed complete. It's just such a, a cool recording. And you have to have something in your collection that has Nancy Wilson on it. Then this would be one of probably three records I could think of that you should have. In your collection, if you want a Nancy Wilson record, overall score is 9 out of 10.
0: Yeah, I, I like a lot of the, the points you make there. Um, some of the times we're going to have to be a little critical, and so we might find small things to nitpick at. And so this one's hard to find small things, but we're going to try to, you know, tell you some places where the album falls short because you know pretty much nothing's going to be a 10 out of 10 so we got to tell you why you know we might fall short of whatever number why we're getting to what number we're going to give it for the rating so yeah with our combined score this album you know stacks up with some of the greats of all time our combined score is going to be a 9.1 out of 10 on this one just an absolutely incredible album and so let's uh get into our our album for next week's episode um, it's a modern album and we had to uh we had to do one by the great joey de after learning about his uh tragic passing way too soon um a revered one of the greatest jazz organists and kind of revived the jazz organ in popular jazz music so we're going to do the album uh, from 2019 in the key of the universe, one of his more popular recent releases. I'm I'm really looking forward to it as an organist, as I know Max probably is as well. So that's what we're getting into next week. Um, we're going to try to remember Joey D. Francesco's legacy by doing um, this album.
1: Yes, we had to honor Joey D. He passed away about a, a week and a half or so um, from when we're recording this. It was a devastating story, a devastating um, loss for the greater jazz community. You know, everybody just just adored his playing. You know, he has kind of a troubled history, but he also has contributed so much to this music. I especially enjoyed listening to his radio show. He had a one-hour show on Sirius XM Real Jazz channel called Organized, where he did an hour or an hour and a half of of all organ jazz and he often featured players he performed with or was con or was currently performing with and not only his playing but his voice on the radio and throughout the jazz world will be missed and it's cool to note he also was getting into some trumpet playing well he's always kind of been a trumpet player as well as an organist but lately he was doing more saxophone and so he had a really really cool tenor saxophone sound as well as his you know his approach to Oregon and trumpet that was really almost really developed or it was on the verge of developing into something really special. And unfortunately, we won't know where that journey really would have gone because we lost um, Joey D, but he will be forever missed.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I think this out this episode is going to be a really good one. Um, especially that's something that I'm super passionate about as being an organ player and Max, we play in an organ trio all the time so I think it's one that we're really excited to get into and um, it'll be awesome to be able to remember Joey D in that way so I just want to say thanks everyone for listening, Um, if you have any questions that you want to ask us or if you have any album recommendations please, please, please feel free to reach out to us, we'll, we'd love to address any questions or album recs that you have, our email is the jazz jam podcast at gmail.com. So yeah, if you have anything you want to tell us or reach out to us, please feel free to do so. That's gonna do it for this review of the classic Nancy Wilson and Cannonball Adderly album. I wanna say thank you to everyone for listening and we'll catch you next week for Max Levy. I am Dwayne Guttles and we'll catch you next time on the Jazz Jam.